Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Warning Kind of Murdery contains adult themes, explicit language, and descriptions of violence. It is not suitable for anyone. And we recommend you stop listening now. True crime with a dash of the paranormal. The garish, the strange, and the darkly comic. I'm Zevin Odelberg, and you've found your way to Kinda Murdery, a place that means more than just murder. It's my very own pocket dimension, home to a curated collection of bizarre and compelling stories, from decades past to the present day, from the Wild West to the deepest rabbit holes of the World Wide Web, the magical, the mystical, and the monstrous. I cover it all, just so long as it's Kinda Murdery. Hey everybody, welcome to Kind of Murdery. I'm your host, Zevin Odelberg. Thank you for deciding to be here. As always, I'd like to start the show by reminding you that it's my hope that Kind of Murdery can become a community of emotional support for people living with disabilities. If you or someone you know is struggling with a disability, physical or otherwise, please reach out to the show, kindofmurdery at gmail.com or at kindofmurdery on social media. Also, I wanted to share with you that I'm going to be switching up Kinda Murdery's drop schedule. There are two changes. At least for the near future, I'm going to be putting out only one episode a week, which isn't to say there will never be bonus content, but as far as what you should expect, expect one episode a week. Secondly, I'm going to move Kinda Murdery's primary drop day from Sunday to Thursday. I'm making these changes for two reasons. The first is good advice, and the second is family. Kinda Murdery is still a pretty young show. We've existed for 15 months, but in that time, the show stopped coming out twice for a total of almost six months. The first time as I transitioned to producing and editing it on my own, and the second time because my family was moving. So if you look at it a certain way, you could say I've only been doing this for about nine months, which means I've still got a lot to learn. And let me tell you, the learning curve is steep. I jumped back in after the time off and wanted to make up for lost time, so I introduced Insomniac. But I've been struggling to balance everything. The pod, my regular job, and of course, my family. So I reached out to some experienced, successful podcasters that I know and trust. You can probably guess who they are, they've been guests on the show, and I asked them for advice. I asked them what they'd learned starting out that they wish they'd known from the beginning. Nobody knew what anyone else had told me, but they all said the same thing, so I figured I'd ought to listen. They said, number one, never miss a drop date. Miss one and you'll lose listeners, and I know I've made that mistake. Number two, don't put out content just to put out content. Make sure it's always your highest quality offering. Any episode you release might be the first and last thing a new listener ever hears. Of course I believe in everything I release, and I hope you enjoy it. 
but I feel like I will create a more consistent, higher quality show if I release once a week. So going forward, Kinda Murdery will come out once a week on Thursdays. And expect fewer guests. I'll certainly still have guests, but I find myself enjoying really diving into the meat of stories in a way that I can only do in a solo format. So I'm going to try out having guests maybe once or twice a month. As for why Thursday instead of Sunday, well I've realized that releasing on Sunday means I often spend the weekend working on the pod instead of spending time with my family. Time goes by quick, kids grow up fast, and I don't want to miss out. So, in summation, going forward, Kinda Murdery will be once a week on Thursday nights, and we'll still have guests, but fewer guests. Essentially, I guess you could say that Insomniac isn't really going away, it's being assimilated into the larger Kinda Murdery brand. And now you'll enjoy the best of both worlds every time. Thank you for your patience, I appreciate each and every one of you, and I wanted to be upfront with you about what to expect and then to stick to it. Again, from now on, Kinda Murdery, once a week, Thursday nights, better than ever. Tell your friends and family, leave reviews, yada yada yada, onto our story. Tonight, I bring you The Murder of Iron Mike Malloy, one of the most incredible true crime stories that I have ever encountered. It's a tale of insurance fraud and murder that explores the breadth, width, and depth of bumbling greed and violence, showcasing a remarkable and seemingly impossible combination of determination, goal focus, and sheer ineptitude on the part of a shady collection of murdery misfits known collectively as the Bronx Murder Trust. The Bronx Murder Trust was a killer cabal led by Tony Marino, owner of a dive bar called Marino's in the Bronx, and rounded out by close friends, the undertaker Frank Pasqua and grocer Danny Kreisberg. Filling up the rest of the Bronx Murder Trust's diabolical dance card of dastardly do-batters were cab driver Hershey Green, Anthony Tough Tony Bastoni, Joseph Maglioni, and John McNally and featuring a guest appearance by Guy with a Car, and a trademark wax appendage, Ed Tinier Smith. Don't worry, you don't have to remember all those names right now. You don't have to take notes. Just sit back, relax, open your ear holes, and give a listen to The Murder of Iron Mike Malloy. First off, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking Zevin's got a flair for the dramatic. He just made all that bull spit up out of whole cloth. You seriously expect me to believe that I'm about to hear a true crime, emphasis on true crime story about the murder of Iron Mike Malloy at the hands of the Bronx Murder Trust, a murderer's row of Yankee murderers named Tony Marino, The Undertaker Frank Pasqua, Hershey Green, Tough Tony Bastoni, Joey Maglioni, Johnny McNally, and Ed Tinier Smith? Right. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you gotta be kidding me. Zevin's making this up. I mean, if I was a movie development exec and this was a hard-bitten cinema verite Marty Scorsese gangster flick, I'd have one note and that one note would be, Hey Marty, tone down the cartoon olive oil, it ain't believable. But believe me, my dear murderies, because this story is 100% verified American history. And if you're still incredulous at the end, Check out the show notes. I'll drop a link to my sources for this story, which include primary newspaper articles, a great take on the case written by Danny Waugh from Writers of Wrong, that's W-R-I-T-E-R-S, writersofwrong.com, and a Smithsonian Magazine article entitled 
The Man Who Wouldn't Die by Karen Abbott. Those two articles will re-blow your mind. Just uh, let me fillet it first. And do check out the stories by Juan Abbott, though. They're well-written, enjoyable reads, and I want to support the people who help me tell these fantastical true crime tales. And now, as evocative as names like Tony Bastoni, Frank the Undertaker Pasqua, and Hershey Smith may be, let's do a quick, finger-wagging moonwalk away from our clown car of colorful killers. Because that's not where our murder story begins. Their names may be romantic, but their crimes are heinous. I doubt anyone still harbors the illusion that insurance fraud is a white-collar, victimless crime. But if you do, banish the thought. Because life insurance fraud, perpetrated on the homeless, and a homeless former first responder no less, is the grotesque pastime of soulless animals. And I'm not backing down from that. The Bronx Murder Trust was a gang of soulless animals. So let's forget about them for a moment, and instead focus our attention on the murder victim, the famously durable Iron Mike Malloy. Mike Malloy, dubbed Mike the Durable or Iron Mike by the press, and so named for his dogged refusal to die, now whether or not the deep irony of naming a man for his refusal to die immediately after his violent death was lost on the newspaper writers, we'll never know. But Durable Mike was born in 1873 in County Donegal, Ireland, a place that's come up here before on Kinda Murdery as the Emerald Isle's legendary seat of leprechaun power. And if you'd like to hear more about that, check out Kinda Murdery's March 22nd, 2022 episode entitled Wee Huey, the Vengeful Leprechaun, featuring Tim Mullins from Hillbilly Horror House. If you're into dark scripted dramas with great effects, check out Hillbilly Horror House. I'll drop a link in the show notes. So where was I? County Donegal. Mike Malloy was born in County Donegal, Ireland. He immigrated to New York City, and in his prime he worked as a firefighter. But by 1933, Iron Mike was pushing 60 and homeless with decades of alcoholism under his belt. And he was a regular fixture at Marino's, the speakeasy owned by Tony Marino, leader of the Bronx Murder Trust. And poor Iron Mike Malloy was about to become Marino's next victim. You may have noticed that just now I said that Mike Malloy would be his next victim, which means that he wasn't Marino's first. And the murder of his first victim, a former hairdresser named Mabel Carlson, would provide the blueprint for the slaying of Iron Mike, for it is an unfortunate aspect of human nature that once we get away with something the first time, we naturally assume we can get away with it again. And so, Mabel Carlson's tragic fate serves as grim foreshadowing of the abuse and eventual murder of Iron Mike Malloy. Here's what happened. In early 1932, homeless and destitute, former hairdresser Mabel Carlson wandered into Tony Marino's speakeasy on 3rd Avenue near 171st Street. Ghoul that he was, Marino gave the grateful woman food and drink and housed her in a furnished room near the speakeasy. A little while later, he took out a $2,000 life insurance policy on Mabel, listing himself as the beneficiary. Then... On St. Patrick's Day, March 17, 1932, Mabel Carlson died of pneumonia, an unfortunate but not unlikely or uncommon cause of death for a homeless woman weathering the Big Apple's Ides of March. 
but I referred to Tony Marino as a ghoul, not a philanthropist, which raises the obvious question. What really happened to Mabel Carlson? It's worse than you think. Marino intended to collect the $2,000 from the life insurance policy, which he did. He collected the money. But first he drugged Carlson, then soaked her clothes in bedclothes in water, opened the window, and allowed New York City's early March temperatures to do the rest. He literally froze her to death. And with Mabel Carlson's death, Tony Marino, leader of the Bronx Murder Trust and budding insurance fraud serial killer, had his proof of concept and a viable go-forward business model. Marino was not unknown to the police. He'd been run in before, suspected in connection with various killings and other criminal activity, but never convicted. In 1932, at the age of 27, Tony Marino was a threadbare, grungy man with an advancing case of syphilis. And just in case that makes him sound almost sympathetic, and certainly syphilitic, I urge you to harbor no misgivings. Tony Marino was a no-doubt, heartless, dead-eyed killer, and nearly all of his associates, the other executives at the Bronx Murder Trust, were hardened criminals unlikely to shy away from the pathological pursuit of profit. The conspiracy to murder Iron Mike Malloy was hatched over a round of rotgut whiskey at Marino's Speakeasy on a July afternoon in 1932, just a few short months after Mabel's murder. It was a nasty, muggy, hotter than a toilet in a boiler room July afternoon in the Bronx, and Tony Marino sat on a bar stool at Marino's alongside his bosom buddies, the undertaker Frankie Pasqua and Danny, the Jewish grocer Kreisberg. Jeez, these sound like professional wrestler names, don't they? Tony, speakeasy, hit hard Marino. Frankie, the undertaker Pasqua and Danny, the Jewish grocer Kreisberg. And don't forget, down at the end of the bar was the tall, rail-thin, ever-present bar barnacle and booze vacuum known as Iron Mike Malloy, who was attempting to wheedle another drink out of the bartender, Joseph Red Murphy. And there they were, just like a wrestling match where the ultimate stakes were life and death. It was a grudge match, the Bronx Murder Trust versus Iron Mike Malloy. Marino found himself glowering at Malloy. Every goddamn morning, he thought. The old man showed up blearily and cheerily requested, Another morning's morning, if you don't mind, in his muddled brogue. Hours later, Malloy would be passed out on the floor. For a while, Marino had let Malloy drink on credit, but he no longer paid his tabs. The insurance money from Mabel's murder got spent quick on back rent, more booze for the bar, and not a small portion on Marino's own entertainment. But God damn it, he thought, a man of business deserves every once in a while to be a man of leisure. Marino was drowning in credit extended to his lowlife clientele, especially Mike Malloy, who seemed to have two hollow legs, three livers, and not one fucking nickel to pay for the rivers of hooch he guzzled down every goddamn day. Marino's glower blazed up into an apoplectic stare, his eyes shooting fire at Malloy. He was pissed off. No, that's wrong. He was goddamn furious. He swore again, adding a few more colors and layers to his repetitive blasphemy. 
Tony wiped the sweat off the back of his neck with a bar towel and poured a round of drinks for Undertaker Frank, grocer Danny Kreisberg, and himself. Boys, he said conspiratorially, still eyeing that bum Mike Malloy with nothing short of pure uncut hatred. Boys, he said, business is bad. Kreisberg and Pasqua followed Marino's gaze to Mike Malloy. There he was, leaning on the bar, hoisting yet another shot of whiskey to his double-covered slack jaw. Nobody knew much about Mike Malloy, least of all Malloy himself. He had no family, no friends, and he certainly had no fucking money. It was the 24-year-old undertaker, Pasqua, who suggested it first. Frankie Pasqua, the undertaker, no, the mortician, was the only one of Tony Marino's associates with even the slightest sheen of respectability. Or maybe that was just the sheen of flop sweat, but anyway, the point is, if you expect people to let you bury or even just burn their loved ones to ash, you can't come off as a destitute creeper. So Frank Pasqua made sure that his shoes were shined and his suit was at least a little less threadbare than Tony's. Yep, it was respectable businessman and mortician Frankie Pasqua who suggested it first, eyeing Iron Mike with only slightly less distaste than Tony had. Mike whose whiskers were wet with whiskey that dribbled from the salt and pepper stubble on his chin. It was Frankie Pasqua who suggested it. Hey, he said, why don't you just take out an insurance policy on Malloy? I can handle the rest. Marino nodded in motion to Malloy. He looks all in. He ain't got much longer to go anyhow. The stuff's getting to him. It ought to be easy to let the old man drink himself to death. Marino and Pasqua glanced over at Daniel Kreisberg. The 29-year-old grocer and father of three would later say that he participated for the sake of his family. Kreisberg nodded his agreement, and the gang set into motion a macabre chain of events that would earn Michael Malloy cult immortality by proving him to be nearly immortal. Until at last, of course, he proved to be entirely, tragically, mortal. Pasqua offered to do the legwork, paying an unnamed acquaintance to accompany him to meetings with insurance agents. This acquaintance called himself Nicholas Mellory and gave his occupation as florist, a detail that one of Pasqua's colleagues in the funeral business was willing to verify. It took Pasqua five months and a connection with an unscrupulous agent, to secure three policies, all offering double indemnity on Nicholas Mellory's life, two with Prudential Life Insurance Company and one with Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. Now, double indemnity, in case you aren't familiar, is a clause through which a life insurance policy pays out double if the insured dies as the result of an accident. Frankly, I'm surprised this device even exists, since it seems like an invitation to murder. And indeed, in this case, it was. The undertaker Frankie Pasqua gave Joseph Red Murphy, the bartender at Marino's, a role to play in the conspiracy. It would be his job to identify the soon-to-be-deceased Mike Malloy as Nicholas Mellory, and claim to be his next-of-kin and beneficiary. 
if all went as planned, Pasqua and his cohorts would split $3,576, about $54,000 in today's money. It would be a plum payday and easily collected just as soon as Mike Malloy died as uneventfully and anonymously as he had lived. The key, of course, being that Iron Mike Malloy had to actually die in order for the Bronx Murder Trust to collect, and nobody, and I mean nobody, would ever call Iron Mike a cheap date because he absolutely refused to go down easy. Just how tough was he? Well, you're about to find out. The insurance murder plan was born in the sweltering heat of July 1932, and five months later, in the latter part of a bitter cold December, the insurance policies had been secured, and the Bronx Murder Trust was finally ready to cut the red ribbon on their homicidal plan. It was not soft-heartedness, but rather common sense that dictated the Bronx Murder Trust's initial strategy for ending Mike Malloy's life. The man was an inveterate, reckless, and enthusiastic drinker whose body was no doubt already on the brink of death by alcohol poisoning. And so, they reasoned, simply allowing Mike to drink himself to death would be the quickest, least suspicious, and most enjoyable means to hasten Malloy's sojourn to a pauper's grave, and thereby secure the insurance payments they anticipated. Not that a pleasant demise for Malloy was high on the list of the murder trust's motivation, but even stone-hearted killers can be kind if that kindness appears to be the most efficient means to an end. And so, Marino made Mike Malloy an offer he couldn't refuse. Listen, Mike, Marino said, clapping the drunk on his unsteady shoulder in a feigned show of camaraderie. I'm sure you know this, but the bar business is a tough one, and I'm afraid that these days Marino's here isn't keeping up with the competition. Now I know, hell, everyone knows that loyal customers like you are the key to success, and I want to keep you happy, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to loosen the rules for you. Drink up, my man. From here on out, you've got unlimited credit. Iron Mike was, of course, delighted, stunned, certainly by this unexpected show of friendship, but nonetheless delighted. It had been decades since he'd been in a position to look a gift horse in the mouth anyway. So Mike harbored no doubts and asked no questions, but instead went straight to tipping him back with almost superhuman gusto. For Marino's part, he and the rest of the Bronx Murder Trust reasoned that a degenerate booze hound like Mike Malloy, with his impressive resume of alcoholic experience, would, if given free reign and unlimited access to whiskey, drink himself to death in short order. Oh, how wrong they were. For three days and three nights, Malloy consumed a bottomless ocean of cheap corn liquor, pausing only long enough to pass out and then jerk awake and continue drinking. Eventually, when the bar closed, he would stumble into the street, only to return when Marino's opened and resume his favorite sport, whiskey consumption. A sport at which the world had never seen a more talented, experienced, expert, or professional athlete. Marino tipped so many bottles pouring shots for Iron Mike that his elbow got sore. He flinched in pain at the sharp twinge of oncoming tendinitis. Marino was forced to acknowledge that allowing Iron Mike to drink himself to death on bar credit was proving not only to be ineffective, but prohibitively expensive. 
it was clear that he would have to do something to hasten Malloy's expiration, lest the dedicated Irishman drink him out of a business and straight into the breadline. By this time, word of Marino's scheme had filtered into the local underworld, and two petty crooks, John McNally and Eddie Tinier Smith, called that because of his wax ear, arrived at the speakeasy to watch the Iron Mike murder show. Also present was Anthony Tough Tony Bastoni, a member of the vicious Dutch Schultz gang, and Tough Tony's sidekick, Joey Maglioni. Tough Tony wasn't just there to spectate. As a mobster will do, he had muscled his way in on Marino's action, requiring a payout for himself and his buddy from the eventual insurance money. And Marino, without the backing of a violent cartel like the Dutch Schultz gang, was in no position to refuse him. Like everyone else at the bar, tough Tony Bastoni was looking forward to his sure-thing easy-money payday. And now, having observed Iron Mike enjoy himself thoroughly for three-plus days straight, tough Tony was at the end of his patience. When Mike Malloy staggered outside for a piss or a puke or who the hell knows, tough Tony vented his frustration to Marino. I ain't got time for this. Let's just shoot the rummy bastard in the street. While Marino agreed with the first half of that sentiment, he was alarmed by the second and recognized that he would have to find some way to accelerate the process before he went broke or tough Tony Bastoni took matters into his own hands. The bartender, Red Murphy, sensed that his boss was running short on inspiration and observing the steam whistling out of tough Tony's ears like a tea kettle, Red knew it would be in everyone's best interests if cooler heads prevailed. He was a bartender, which in the Prohibition years meant he was also something of a moonshiner and bathtub gin chemist. As such, Murphy was intimately familiar with all the lethal poisons floating around the country's speakeasies. In particular, the deadly, blinding, toxic byproduct of bathtub gin or shoddy distilling, wood alcohol known by its chemical name as methanol. Methanol is a highly toxic chemical substance often found in such industrial compounds as paint thinner and automobile antifreeze. Consuming just 10 milliliters of methanol was enough to induce blindness in humans. Two to eight ounces was enough to kill a grown adult. Murphy suggested to the group that they accelerate their timeline by feeding Iron Mike wood alcohol cocktails. Marino loved the idea. Even the normally staid Dan Kreisberg broke into a grin and said, Yeah, feed him wood alcohol cocktails and see what happens. The next afternoon, Murphy procured several 10-cent cans of wood alcohol from a nearby paint store. He then spent the next hour or so transferring the poison to innocuous-looking liquor bottles. That evening... Mike Malloy arrived for his usual gargantuan ration of booze. Murphy gave him a few pops of Marino's standard rot gut to get him feeling good. He then announced to Mike that they had some new stuff that had just come in today and would he like to try it. As the plotters anxiously watched, Malloy downed a shot of booze laced with wood alcohol. To their amazement, he commented that it was quite smooth and could he have another. Red poured him another and another. Malloy kept drinking shots of whiskey mixed with wood alcohol and showed no signs of discomfort other than the usual symptoms of drunkenness. In the coming nights, Murphy and Marino took to lacing Malloy's drink with stronger and stronger doses of wood alcohol, 
finally throwing caution to the wind when they served him straight wood alcohol. Seemingly oblivious to the noxious odor and taste, Malloy guzzled this poison night after night as the murder trust looked on in utter disbelief, probably wondering just what the hell Malloy had been drinking all his life. After a full week's diet of raw wood alcohol, Malloy suddenly collapsed to the floor of the virtually empty speakeasy one night. The crew fell silent. Frank Pasqua, the undertaker, moved in close to check Malloy's vital signs. Mike was still breathing, but slowly and erratically, the boys eagerly watched for his chest to stop moving. Finally, Malloy let out a long, seemingly final ragged exhale. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And then began snoring loudly. He woke up early the next morning to greet Murphy with his usual refrain. Give me some of that old regular Murph. There's a good lad. Now I imagine that you, like the Bronx Murder Trust, are probably wondering how the heck Iron Mike could drink shot after shot of pure wood alcohol with no apparent ill effects. First of all, let me say the kind of murdery is neither a chemistry nor a medical advice show, so please, please, for the love of Pete, do not test the veracity of this statement. Assume that if you drink wood alcohol under any circumstances, you will at the very least go blind and probably die. As a matter of fact, wood alcohol poisoning was rampant during Prohibition, which began in 1920. Well, by 1929, there were more than 50,000 people in the U.S. who had died from drinking wood alcohol. And that's from drinking wood alcohol-tainted beverages. Iron Mike Malloy was downing shot after shot of straight wood alcohol. So how did Durable Mike get away with it? Well, here's what my research suggests. Red Murphy's amateur chemist chops notwithstanding, what the Bronx Murder Trust didn't know is that ethanol, the alcohol we drink, chemically interacts with methanol, the wood alcohol that blinds and kills us. And ethanol, in sufficient quantities, limits and can even neutralize the most egregious toxic effects of consuming methanol, blindness and death. In other words, after decades of degenerate boozing, Iron Mike Malloy's organs were so thoroughly pickled in ethanol as to make him immune to methanol's deadly side effects. As Wesley from The Princess Bride might have explained, I spent the last few years building up an immunity to iocane powder. Even without chemical knowledge, common observation forced the gang to conclude that wood alcohol would not be Iron Mike's undoing. Red Murphy was struck with sudden inspiration. He remembered seeing a man die of acute gastrointestinal distress after consuming alcohol and raw oysters in combination, and so he bought raw oysters, soaked them in booze, and offered them to Malloy on the house. Malloy, thrilled by his continuing and apparently improving good fortune, consumed the oysters with great relish and gratitude, but no apparent ill effects. And much to Murphy's frustration, he went straight back to drinking. The bartender concluded that he would have to ramp up his attempts to poison Mike even further. 
He let several cans of sardines rot for days in the sun and then served Malloy sardine sandwiches again on the house. But these sandwiches were also tainted with ground-up tin can and broken glass. Murphy reasoned that the sharp bits of metal would lodge in Malloy's gut and surely kill him. But Iron Mike loved the grub, munching on it gratefully, asking for more, and even going so far in his effusive praise to suggest that with their knowledge of good food, Marino and Red Murphy ought to open up a restaurant. The upshot of all this scheming was simply that instead of drink, pass out, wake up, and drink some more, Iron Mike added another step to his established routine, which became drink, eat sardine sandwich, pass out, wake up, drink, drink some more, eat more sandwiches. Again, the expected ill effects were absent, and Mike, expressing copious amounts of slurred gratitude, enjoyed the sandwiches greatly and was not shy about requesting more, and more, and more. Now, sardines were cheap, but they weren't free, and Marino watched with growing dismay as the capital required for his investment in durable Mike Malloy's death only increased. So next, at Marino's urging, Red added rat poison to the ground-up bits of metal and shards of glass in Mike's sandwiches. And still, Mike consumed them with no hesitation and highly efficient relish, happily plowing his way through the toxic sandwiches and seeming to have more in common with competitive eating legend Kobayashi horking down Nathan's hot dogs than he did with a man about to die from multiple methods of poisoning. Marino was approaching his wit's end. The plot to kill Mike Malloy was not only turning into a giant pain in the balls, it was also costing Tony Marino increasingly large sums of money. Mike's open bar tabs, the cans of wood alcohol, the oysters, the sardine sandwiches, and of course, and most egregiously, the monthly insurance premiums. Marino complained that he was going to go bankrupt before they knocked off Malloy. Killing Mike Malloy had become more of a point of professional pride and less and less of a smart business decision. The Bronx Murder Trust's mood was dispirited, even bleak and their awe at the seemingly indestructible Mike Malloy had taken on a bitter air of almost religious superstition. The men took to calling him Rasputin and openly wondered if their entire enterprise was inevitably doomed. Clearly, sponsoring Iron Mike Malloy's all-you-can-eat-and-drink carnival death cruise was not sustainable. They needed to alter their course of action. The old saying goes, If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And while certainly the Bronx Trust's current murder strategy was very much broke, Marino had pulled off this homeless murder life insurance scam successfully once before. And he recalled with sudden excitement that freezing his victim to death through exposure to New York's harshest elements had worked like a charm. Why not do it again? As luck would have it, the winter of early 1933 was one of the harshest on record. By mid-January, the city was locked in a dangerous cold snap, and Marino decided it was time to let his tried-and-true modus operandi bear fruit. Marino and Frank Pasqua waited until Malloy passed out drunk at the bar and then hauled him outside to Pasqua's roadster. The weather, the worst of the winter of 1933, was perfect for their mission, 
An intense blizzard was in progress, and a demonic wind straight from the bowels of hell blew in from the northwest. The temperature was bone-chilling, negative 14 degrees Fahrenheit. The two conspirators drove in silence to Cretona Park a few blocks to the east. Once they were there, they dragged the unconscious Malloy into the snowy park. This task was not as easy as it sounded. Neither Marino nor Pasqua were great physical specimens, and Malloy was not a small man. In addition to Mike's dead weight, they were also lugging a five-gallon jug of water. Before long, their cumbersome stroll had both men panting and popping sweat despite the Arctic-like weather conditions. After laying Malloy on a suitable park bench, they stripped off his shirt and doused his head and bare torso with the contents of the water jug. Through it all, Malloy never stirred. Confident that Mike would quickly freeze to death, Marino and Pasqua retreated to the car. When Marino arrived at his speakeasy the following day, whistling happily in anticipation of a plum payday, he found Malloy's half-frozen form in the basement. Somehow Malloy had trekked the half-mile back and persuaded Murphy to let him in. When he came to, he complained of a wee chill. And as morning broke, Durable Mike parked his bony butt on a bar stool and happily awaited his daily ration of wood alcohol and doubly poisoned, spoiled sardine sandwiches. February was rapidly approaching and with it another round of insurance premium payments. The Brooklyn Murder Trust was desperate and they resorted to declaring open war on the seemingly indestructible person of Iron Mike Malloy. The friendly days of tainted oysters, broken glass sandwiches, free wood alcohol and midnight exposure to negative 14 winter nights were a thing of the past. It was time to take a more direct approach. Suspicious insurance agents be damned. One of the gang, John McNally, wanted to run Malloy over with a car. Tinier Smith was skeptical, but Marino, Pasqua, Murphy, and Kreisberg were intrigued. Tough Tony Bastoni's sidekick, Joe Maglioni, offered the services of his friend, Hershey Green. On the surface, Hershey was a harmless cab driver. In reality, Harry Green was a heartless sociopath who was eager to try out murder for the first time. For a $150 cut of the insurance money, Green was willing to run Mike Malloy down in the street with his cab. It seemed that deliverance was finally at hand for the murder trust. They all piled into Green's cab, a drunken Malloy strewn across their feet. Green drove a few blocks and stopped. Bastoni and Murphy dragged Malloy down the road, holding him up crucifixion-style by his outstretched arms. Green gunned the engine. Everyone braced. From the corner of his eye, Maglioni saw a quick flash of light. Stop! he yelled. The cab lurched to a halt. But it turns out it was just a woman in a nearby apartment turning on her light, and so Hershey readied himself for another go at running down Iron Mike Malloy. Green reversed his hack the requisite two blocks for another try. Once Malloy was propped upright in the street, the cabbie floored his accelerator. The weaving drunk rapidly swelled in the windshield, looking to the plotters like some crazy camera trick at the picture show. Just at the moment of truth, the completely oblivious Malloy blundered out of the path of the speeding taxi, which rocketed past him with inches to spare. Tony Marino and his pals literally howled with frustration. They say God takes care of fools and drunkards. Malloy may have been both, but he was certainly... Exhibit A, proving without question the truth of that statement. 
Harry Green was angrily muttering curses under his breath as he backed his cab up yet another time. Bastoni and Murphy, who were bickering incessantly by this point, once again stood up poor old Mike Malloy in the middle of the street to await his miserable fate. This time, Bastoni and Murphy held up Malloy until the last possible second. Green was traveling between 45 and 50 miles an hour when his cab struck the drunken man head on. Malloy briefly flung up on the hood before disappearing from view. The plotters felt two pronounced thuds as the cab rolled over the body. The cab came to a stop. Just to make sure Malloy was dead, Green threw his hack in reverse and shot backwards directly over Malloy's unmoving form, which was spun sideways by the force of the impact. However, the headlights of an approaching vehicle scared off the boys before they could confirm their success. It fell to Joseph Red Murphy, the bartender, who had been cast as Nicholas Mellory's brother, to call morgues and hospitals in an attempt to locate his missing sibling. No one had any information, nor were there any reports of a fatal accident in the newspapers. At this point, Tony Marino was deep in a hole from the cost of paying insurance premiums and feeding Iron Mike's endless alcoholic appetite, he was already grappling with having to split his eventual payday nine ways. And now, now that godforsaken, freeloading bum Mike Malloy had gone and disappeared on them. If they didn't find him, there would not even be a payment to split too many ways, and Tony Marino would be well and truly screwed. Sometime during the five days that followed the attempt at vehicular homicide courtesy of Hershey Green's cab... Tony Marino's reason fully broke loose from its moorings. He sat at his bar, feverishly planning to shanghai and kill another anonymous derelict. Any fucking anonymous derelict would do. Why'd they have to off the unkillable Mike Malloy to collect? The answer was, they didn't. They could kill any random hobo and pass him off as Nicholas Mellory. Hell, Mike Malloy wasn't really Nicholas Mellory either. Bastoni and the others agreed. With Malloy gone to who knows where, they needed someone to fill in. The boys decided to search the speakeasies and dive bars across the river in Harlem where no one would recognize them. Joseph Patrick Murray was a 31-year-old unemployed plasterer's assistant when, on the night of February 6, 1933, he unknowingly wandered into the violent, insane universe of the murder trust. Like Mike Malloy, he was a heavy drinker. It was his misfortune that he bore an astonishing physical resemblance to the durable barfly whom he had never and would never meet. Murray was approached outside a 128th Street speakeasy by a gentleman later identified as Tough Tony Bastoni who offered him a job. With a little urging, the tipsy Murray was coaxed into Harry Green's cab. Despite the crowd of hungry-eyed men inside, Murray leaned back and drank heavily from the whiskey bottle they offered. Amazingly, they spotted fellow trustee John McNally on the sidewalk and flagged him down. By this time, the murder trust wasn't wasting any more time on niceties. Once they arrived back at Marino's bar, they offered Murray a Malloy-esque line of unlimited credit. The murder trusters certainly didn't care. They merely wanted Murray drunk enough so that he could be run over with ease. Within an hour or so, Murray obliged them by passing out cold at the bar. Tony Marino, perhaps sensing an end to this ordeal, let out a ghoulish chuckle. 
Gee, he's almost a double for Malloy. The hapless Murray was then shoved into the floor of Harry Green's cab. As they set out for Trinity Avenue to do the job, the murder trust was dismayed to see that there was far too much vehicle and pedestrian traffic to hit their target. Since it was still too early in the evening, the boys retreated to Marino's speakeasy, where the unconscious Joe Murray was dropped on the grimy floor like a sack of potatoes, while they waited for the hours to pass until killing time. By midnight, they set out again. Harry Green said, I know a place by Southern Boulevard. Murray was shoved back into the floor of the cab as they set out. After finding Southern Boulevard suitably deserted for their nefarious deed, Bastoni and Red Murphy shoved a phony Nicholas Mellory ID in Joe Murray's pocket and propped him up to receive a kiss from the Mike Malloy Express. If possible, this attempt was even sloppier than their previous runs at Malloy. Harry Green was going a mere 30 miles an hour when he hit Murray's staggering frame. After seeing the poor man crunch under all four wheels, the murder trust figured he had to be dead. At the lights of an approaching car, they split. When Green and Joe Maglioni returned his cab to the garage around 2 that morning, Harry got word that the cops wanted to see him. Both murder trustees blanched. Green was interviewed by NYPD Detective Lloyd of the 40th Precinct, who wanted to question him about reportedly hitting a pedestrian earlier in the evening. Unaware of the bizarre conspiracy that he had inadvertently stumbled onto, Detective Lloyd allowed Harry Green to leave around 5 that morning. Green and Maglioni promptly woke up Tony Marino and told him of their grilling. All three agreed that even if Murray died, they couldn't collect the insurance money. While they weren't in jail yet, the sudden prospect of heat from the cops was unsettling, to say the least. With Joe Murray clinging to life in the hospital and Mike Malloy still missing, the murder trust was at a crossroads. They could either call the whole thing off or search for yet another victim. Less than two days... After the Murray fiasco, the door to Tony Marino's speakeasy flew open with a bang and in hobbled none other than Mike Malloy. Although banged up and swathed in bandages, he was otherwise fit as a fiddle. In a strange touch, like a hat on a horse or lipstick on a pig, the downtrodden Malloy was dressed in a brand new suit. Marino Pasqua and the rest of the murder trust could only stare at him jaws agape. Every member of the trust was damn near out of money at this point. And as they looked at Mike Malloy, they couldn't decide whether they were more furious at him or just jealous of that sharp new suit. As for Malloy, he greeted his best friends in the world with a simple, Oh, I am dying for a drink. Iron Mike didn't remember too much. He'd been pretty shit-faced, after all. He remembered the taste of Tony's booze, the sharp cold of the night air, the bright gleam of car headlights. Then bang! Blackness. Next thing he knew, he was in the hospital with a broken collarbone and a concussion. A passing beat cop had come upon him and called an ambulance to take him to Fordham Hospital. It turned out that Mike Malloy had been listed in the hospital under his real name, thus explaining why Red Murphy had come up empty when he called Fordham looking for Nicholas Mellory. 
a charity organization took pity and outfitted him with this here suit. Anywho, he said, I'm just glad to be back here with me good friends, and I sure am dying for a drink. Taking his cue, Red Murphy reached for the jug of wood alcohol and poured Malloy a stiff one. The eye-watering stench of methanol rose heavily from the bar and quickly permeated every crevice of Marino's shitty little saloon. It was a wonder that the paint on the walls hadn't started to dissolve. It was later left to the New York Times to dryly sum it all up with this headline. Gin resists motor car. The murder trust was utterly defeated. Every plan they cooked up that should have succeeded ended up failing miserably. In a bitter yet fitting irony, even if their early attempts to kill Malloy had worked, they would not have been paid a cent. The insurance policies for Nicholas Mellory were double indemnity. While death by automobile qualified for double indemnity, death by liquid poisoning, hypothermia, tainted seafood, and ground tin and broken glass sandwiches did not. The murder trust had been unknowingly shooting themselves in the foot since day one. As a bonus, Malloy, blissfully ignorant of the sinister forces at work against him, was still hanging around the bar, drinking large amounts of wood alcohol. Indeed, Malloy probably thought he had never had it so good. Unlimited booze and free lunch, a warm place to hang his hat on cold winter nights and good conversation with his friends. Never mind that he might occasionally wake up half-naked on a park bench or concussed in the middle of the street. Mike Malloy had finally found a place where he felt at home. It was the very definition of insanity. By mid-February, both Tony Marino and Frank Pasqua were teetering on the edge of a nervous breakdown, that point of dementia where they began to believe that Mike Malloy could not be killed under any circumstances. A small fortune was so close they could taste it, only one apparently indestructible man stood between them and their money. Finally, they decided that tough Tony Bastoni had been right all along. Only straight-up murder would work. Late in the afternoon of February 22, 1933, all appeared to be normal in Tony Marino's speakeasy. Red Murphy stood behind the bar helping himself to the inventory while Marino sat at a nearby table glancing indifferently over a newspaper. Tough Tony Bastoni and another man named James Salone were drinking at the bar, as was Charter Murder trustee Dan Kreisberg. Per usual, Mike Malloy sat at the bar nursing a drink. For a change of pace, Malloy was drinking regular whiskey. The small saloon was blessedly free of the overpowering stink of wood alcohol. In a surprise move around supper time, Bastoni challenged Malloy to a drinking contest. Already quite sloshed, Mike eagerly accepted. Glasses of whiskey were poured. Soon after starting, Tough Tony gave Red Murphy a menacing look. The bartender knew what that look meant and deftly switched out Malloy's whiskey for wood alcohol. Bastoni and Malloy slugged it out for about 20 minutes. Kreisberg later estimated that Malloy drank nearly two quarts of wood alcohol in that brief period. As strong as he was, a survivor of so much violent incompetence over the last two months, Mike had finally reached his limit. Malloy swayed at the bar, clutching the rail as his cast-iron constitution struggled against the surfeit of methanol now coursing through his system. 
Mike slowly sank to the floor as he passed out, while tough Tony whooped and raised his arms as if he'd just won a title fight. Red Murphy got his arms around Malloy and half-dragged, half-carried him nearly a mile through their Bronx neighborhood to a furnished room at 1210 Fulton Avenue. Dan Kreisberg and tough Tony Bastoni trailed behind them. None of the murder trustees seemed too concerned that a passerby might notice them dragging an unconscious derelict along the sidewalk. As Bastoni stood guard outside, just to make sure those little shits don't chicken out, the huffing and puffing Murphy lugged Malloy up to the room. The landlady of the building, Delia Murphy, no relation, heard the commotion and asked what was happening. A surprisingly quick-thinking Red told her that his brother was feeling ill and he needed to lay down. Once inside the room, Red Murphy deposited Malloy on the bed. Murphy and Kreisberg put into motion the plan that Frank Pasqua had outlined over the last week. A rubber hose would be connected to a gaslight fixture and the opened-in fed down Malloy's throat. The resulting stream of poisonous fumes would succeed where they all had so frequently failed. After they connected the hose to the valve, they were dismayed to discover that it wouldn't reach the bed. Murphy and Kreisberg merely stood over the semi-conscious Malloy, blinking stupidly at each other and the too short hose. They solved their dilemma by dragging Malloy onto the floor. Murphy then stuffed a towel in Malloy's mouth and fed the open end of the hose down his throat while Dan Kreisberg turned on the gas valve. A hissing sound filled the room as Murphy held the hose down fast. Malloy seemed to sense what was happening and began squirming and moaning. Mike's face turned purple as he fought valiantly to live. Suddenly, Red Murphy let out a disgusted grunt. Christ, the son of a bitch pissed all over me. Seemingly in response, Malloy stopped struggling and breathing. The moment they had all been so desperately seeking was at hand. Well, on February 21st, 1933, seven months after the murder trust first convened, Michael Malloy finally died in a tenement near 168th Street, less than a mile from Marino's speakeasy. A rubber tube ran from the gaslight fixture to his mouth and a towel was wrapped tightly around his face. Dr. Frank Manzella, a friend of Pasqua's, filed a phony death certificate citing pneumonia as the cause. The gang received only $800 from the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. Prudential wouldn't pay out. Murphy and Marino each spent their share on a new suit. An investigation ensued. Everyone began talking. And everyone eventually faced charges. I gotta tell ya, I'm pretty furious with the Bronx Murder Trust here. I mean, murdering anyone is horrific, horrible, terrible, of course. But these assholes went and killed probably one of the most impressive human specimens in recorded history. I've never heard of anybody like Iron Mike Malloy. Frank, the Undertaker Pasqua. Tony, Speakeasy and Hit Hard Marino. Daniel, the Jewish Grocer Kreisberg. And Joseph, Red Murphy, were tried and convicted of first-degree murder.
As for tough Tony Bastoni, his buddy Joe Maglioni shot him to death in a dispute over their share of the insurance money. Pasqua, Marino, Kreisberg, and Murphy tried to pin their crimes on the dead Bastoni. But as I mentioned, it did not work. They were tried and convicted and sent to Sing Sing. Perhaps, one reporter mused, the grinning ghost of Mike Malloy was present in the Bronx County Courthouse. The charter members of the murder trust were sent to the electric chair at Sing Sing, which killed them all on the very first try. You've just heard the murder of Iron Mike Malloy. If you enjoyed tonight's show, please do, please, tell your friends and family. Subscribe, follow, leave a review. It really, really helps. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Zevin Odelberg, and this has been Kinda Murdery. If you've enjoyed today's Kinda Murdery, please tell your friends and family, tell strangers, leave a review. It's the best way to ensure that I can keep telling that special brand of bizarre and terrible tales that you'll only find here on Kinda Murdery.